This is Debbie Talbert. You are listening to episode 17 of Exit the Drinking Life podcast. This is an interview I did with Florence Christopher, and she is a sugar addiction expert. And my hunch is some of you might be asking, why am I bringing on a sugar addiction expert? But if you really rethink it, there's a lot of sugar in alcohol. And Florence has this amazing ninja trick that she's going to talk about in this interview that you are going to love and you can apply it to help you exit the drinking life. Stay tuned. Welcome to Exit the Drinking Life. This is a podcast for the individual who is ready to exit, leave everything behind, all your beliefs about alcohol. You're ready to question them, to rethink them, and to explore the possibility of experiencing all life has to offer without a drink in your hand. Hello, my friends. I am so excited to bring this interview with you guys today. Now, as you're listening, you are going to observe and notice and hear me say the sober curious in here because I interviewed Florence while I was hosting and operating the Sober Curious podcast. And this new uh, name, Exit the Drinking Life, has replaced that. And this was replaced because the words sober curious have been trademarked. I think that's absolutely awesome. This means people are really curious about life without alcohol in it. And there is a movement happening. And this is awesome because the shame and the stigma is going to become less and less because of this type of movement. However, I brought this back in because I believe Florence's message is too important for you guys to miss. So I am repurposing this episode. Yes, I do say the sober curious and welcome my sober curious friends. And we talk about being curious because as you're exiting the drinking life, you do need to become curious. So I just decided this interview was too important to not bring back into the podcast. So you will notice that throughout the podcast because I was I did interview her during the time when the podcast name was was the sober curious. And please stay tuned till the end and you'll find out more about how you can work with me and also ask me any questions. You can email me at Debbie at Jump Seat Coaching and I'm also going to be bringing in a weekly way to ask me questions. So get your name on the list so that you can be informed when this comes about. I'll talk to you guys later and I really hope you enjoy this episode. It's really, really going to help you this ninja trick. All right, there we go. So, all right. Hey, everyone here over at the Sober Cures. I'm so glad you guys are here with me and listening to us today. And I'm so super excited because I have Florence Christopher with me today. And my hunch is that many of you are going to get some insight in this and to help you with transforming your relationship with alcohol, with whatever that is with for you. Even though Florence actually specializes in helping people with sugar addiction, a lot of this ties together because, as we all know, alcohol has a ton of sugar in it. So, as we get, so I'm here with Florence, and Florence, go ahead and tell people a little bit about yourself. Like, tell them a little bit about the story of how you got started on your sugar addiction path and kind of what happened for you. Oh, okay, awesome. <laughs> um, I, I think, I think, I think, truthfully, I'm a multi generational lover of sugar. Um, I think my my grandma, when I used to go over and visit her, 
she always had stashes of chocolate and candies and stuff. And whenever she'd come over, she'd be like, oh, come over here. And she'd motion us to the bedroom and she'd rifle through her underwear drawer or socks or whatever it was. I don't remember. <laughs> and always give us treats. Right. And so in hindsight, I suspect that, um, you know, she was a lover of sugar as well. So I would say that in my youth, like in my early childhood, I do have some memories of, of some odd memories around being pretty locked into finding sugar, eating sugar. Um, so for example, uh, I have a memory of a time when my mom would find me with this quite a big, quite a deep kitchen counter. And in the corner was a lazy Susan. And I was about three or four and I could sneak in there and I could sit in the dark and I could dig into this box of this brown plain box of macaroni. And I'd sit and I'd chew this macaroni. And honestly, it was like my happy place. I loved it. It would get all gooey and gummy. I'd look like a squirrel or a chipmunk. And I'd just sit there and be very pleasured. (laughs) It It was dark and it was quiet. And here I was just enjoying this raw macaroni. Um, I also have memories of looking forward to desserts and being quite obsessed with candy and getting it. And sometimes I would, one time I stole it from a store and my mom made me go back and apologize. That was the one and only time I did that. Um, so yeah, there was lots of preoccupation with sugar as, as a child, but it wasn't until my, my late teens, I'd say, where I started to gain weight and I started to get depressed and I started to have more pronounced health challenges and I kind of intuitively knew that I needed to eat better. I was never aware that sugar was at the heart of the problem. I just kind of knew that processed foods were the junk food. I was the fast food. So I was trying to cut back on that and I recognized pretty quickly that that was easier said than done. But it wasn't until my early 20s when I was plagued with migraines. My skin was cranky. I had infections. I I had on and off again depression. And then I had these blinding, unrelenting migraines. And I was in and out of doctor's offices and on different pharmaceuticals and in and out of urgent care, getting shot up with all kinds of stuff. And it was so so dramatic and so painful that I was truly open-minded. I knew pharmaceuticals Clearly, if they were going to help me, they were the solution. They would have worked already because I'd been using them since I was early, probably eight or nine or 10. I used to get very bad migraines. They were getting worse over the years, but I've been using Thalanol, Advil and morphine and Demerol and Bravil and all those different kinds of drugs to try and deal with this. And clearly it was still getting worse. So I knew I needed another, another way to deal with these. And lo and behold, one day I had a girlfriend um, swing by with a copy of the book called The Sugar Blues. Have you read it? The what? The Sugar Blues? Yeah. No, I haven't read that one yet. Oh, I recommend it to anybody who, who considers themselves perhaps a, a sugar lover as well. Um, it's a brilliant, brilliant little book about the history of sugar and how it's implicated in all kinds of health issues and how for some of us it's, it's addictive. So after reading the book, um, I was so inspired. I'm like, oh, that's it. It's sugar. I just need to get off of sugar. And so, and at this point I was grasping for anything to try and find relief because when you spend three or four days in the dark, um, to some extent, on some occasions, I was truly suicidal. I wanted to die. I did not want to go through one single second more of this throbbing, pounding pain. It was brutal. So, um, I was willing to even consider giving up sugar. And so I had tried that. I mean, I I think I made it for about three days before I realized I don't feel very good. I was nauseous. 
I had, my hands were shaky. I was craving it. I was cranky. I was tired, but I couldn't sleep. I had nightmares when I did sleep. All I could think about was like Oreos and pancakes and pasta. And all of a sudden I realized it's like this really chilling moment. And maybe you have a similar moment in your story where you realize this is a problem. (laughs) I think I'm addicted to sugar. (laughs) Like this isn't, this shouldn't be this hard. Like if I decided to give up broccoli for three days, I'm pretty sure I wouldn't be going through this intense what we know now are withdrawal symptoms and detox symptoms, but I had no idea then. This was about 1989, maybe. So pre-internet, very few books on the market. No one was talking about this. I was truly out in the wilderness by myself, um, battling, battling symptoms and cravings that I, nobody related to. I have no friends that were sugar addicts at all. So I, w- I felt like something, I was odd. So I had the epiphany, I think I'm addicted to sugar. And I started to say to my friends, I think I'm addicted to sugar. And they'd laugh at me. Oh, Florence, you're so funny. You can't be addicted to sugar. Like, I, from my friend Remco, it's like, I remember him slapping his knee. He's like, you need that to live. <laughs> and I was like, I agree with you. This is a really dumb idea. But something deep within me had already awakened to the idea that processed white sugar was not my friend, despite the fact that I, it comes in a brilliant array of gorgeous concoctions from cookies and cakes and pies and ice cream and whatever, right? There's so many right. wonderful things we do to make sugar very, very beautiful and very tasty. But I knew by then something deep had already seismically shifted in me. I'd already had my first quantum shift in consciousness. Sugar was no longer beautiful and benign and a pleasure and a part of a balanced meal, something you could have in moderation. For me, I was locked into something that was potentially toxic and really addictive. So I began my journey of figuring out how the heck, at this point in time, I was not thinking about how do I get off of sugar forever? That wasn't even my focus. It was like, how do I just get off this long enough to see if it's gonna help my migraines? Debbie, it shouldn't be hard to get 30 days back to back (laughs) whole food eating. Like really, in theory, it shouldn't be. But I don't think I got 30 days of back to back abstinence truly until I I found a 12 step program many, many years later, which I'm happy to share with you. It It was another turning point in my journey, but it was years later. Like I was probably 20, 21 when I first read that book. And something shifted and I just was, at the very least, I was passionately curious about the idea that maybe sugar was this great solution I'd been praying for in the dark, in the depths of my despair, in the midst of migraines that were unrelenting. And so I I, I couldn't give up the idea, I couldn't give up my hope that maybe getting off of sugar would help. And until I could get a long enough stretch of time to determine if sugar being sugar-free was going to be helpful. I couldn't give up that hope. And I couldn't, I also couldn't get those, I couldn't get back to back days. I would go three or four or five days and then I'd cave. And then sometimes I'd get a couple of weeks and then there'd be long stretches of binging. And I would say before I was a steady consumer of sugar, breakfast, lunch, and dinner, pancakes, you know, um, with maple with syrup, probably Aunt Jemima back then, like pure sugar, glucose syrup, um, And then I'd probably have a pop maybe in between. And then lunch was more 
more forms of sugar and then same with dinner with dessert and candies in between. Like, do you know what I mean? I eat sugar all day long. I wouldn't say I binged, not so much until I tried to pull it out. And then there was that whole diet deprivation binge cycle that kicked in for me that I was also aware of. I could watch this happening before I used to eat three Oreos. Now that I've told myself I don't want to be eating it, I'm eating three rows. So I'm like, great. Not only, uh, not only am I not sugar free, but now I'm like worse. I'm now in the midst of a raging eating disorder because now I'm binging and I can't stop. And oh my goodness, it was a mess. And thank God addicts tend to be really tenacious people. <laughs> because we have to, right? Because we know we're up against something pretty powerful. And it just keeps, I think it builds our backbone and our stubbornness. And I was going to crack this. All I wanted was 30 days just to see what it would do for me. And I couldn't get that. So I did it. I did attend an OA meeting and a few of those and it never resonated with me. And in hindsight, it wouldn't have got me free because there was no sugar-free, flour-free meal plan. And that was this, that was the turning point for me in terms of being able to get the, the foods that act like sugar in my bloodstream and my body. Those are the things that kept the cravings and kept the addiction alive. Um, so really, even if I had stuck it out there, I probably wouldn't have got the recovery that, that I needed. Um, but at least I was reaching out and I was trying to find programs and I was delighted to find it, but it, they weren't talking about sugar addiction or food addiction. They were just talking about compulsive overeating, which was a piece of what I was struggling with. But it was not the heart of my issue. My issue was that I was in an addiction and I, I, I kind of knew it, but I didn't know how to get, get free, really, other than willpower and passion and effort and obsession and mild you know, winning, winning some of the wars, but still kind of losing the battle. So um, can I tell you, is it okay to keep going? Oh yeah, keep going because it sounds very, very like, it's very, very much like what happens when, once you decide to tell your brain, okay, listen, this alcohol is no longer working in my life. And the same things start to happen. I think for people like that's what happened with me. It's like, yes. okay, this is no longer working, but yet it's so socially acceptable. And then like you go, like you talked about, you told your friends, you know, like, I think I'm a sugar addict. Like I would say, like, I think I'm an addict. I think I drink too much alcohol. Oh, no, you don't. You just have fun. It's like, no, but like, you're crazy. You're the crazy one. Right. But yet, you know, in your brain, something's not right. Yes. And it's so I, very much what, like your yeah. story when it comes to the alcohol. And I think a lot of people that are listening to the sober cures can relate because yes. you can just replace it and maybe even some because even for myself sometimes I found the same thing with sugar yes like the second I would say no I'm not going to have all this and the deprivation comes in it's the same thing yes. that goes on Yes, yes. Okay, and the thing is, is that I have since learned is, yeah, you're right. I think the addict's journey, like the hero's journey, follows some pretty consistent steps. It unfolds in ways that most of us can really identify with. And I suppose right. in the 12 step program talk, um, you know, it's like our journey to the bottom, <laughs> our journey to those <laughs> bottoms where something awakens and there's a shift. And then, um, you know, it's, we, there's a there's a there's a turning point. There's a pivot. And so for me, um, there's a couple of other really cool pivots in here if you're op open to that. So let me think. I'm probably in my mid 20s. I am now voraciously reading everything I can on sugar because it, it is true that in my brain, 
I was persuaded by the sugar blues that sugar was probably a piece of my my health issues, my problem, particularly with migraines. And so I, that wasn't a truth yet because I hadn't been able to be off it long enough to know for sure that it was triggering migraines. But as the years went by and I had stretches of getting off of it and I could see absolutely unequivocally that there were all kinds of foods that were triggering my migraines. And at that point in time, when I went to the doctor, the doctor doctors, and I saw all kinds of specialists in and out of like scans and everything. They were trying their very level best to help me sort this out. But no, all, all, the message was always, it's nothing to do with what you're eating. There's no connection between diet and disease, no connection between diet and migraines. So I had kind of ruled that out. But reading the book brought that back up into my awareness. And so I realized that gluten triggers migraines, wine triggers migraines, chocolate triggers migraines, coffee triggers migraines, and sugar triggers migraines, and processed meats. For me, there was a long list of things that triggered migraines. And I was over the years connecting the dots. So my migraines profoundly improved. And thank goodness for that. So despite the fact that I was never 100% sugar-free, that I was still relapsing, I was... I was improving my diet. I was eating more whole foods. I was eating more vegetables, which I've always really enjoyed. They were just crowded out by cookies and pies and cakes and ice cream, et cetera. (laughs) All the fun stuff. And so I was making progress over the years in terms of upgrading my nutrition and finding um, some success with it being beneficial for my health and my mental health. Um, So that said, when I was in my mid-20s, I, it, it shifted away from the, the idea that maybe sugar isn't, was tied in with my migraines and my health issues somehow into a phase of experimenting, my doing my own research and realizing absolutely unequivocally. So at that point, it was like a soul deep knowing. It was in, it was in my bones. It wasn't just in my brains. I knew sugar was no good for me and I needed to get off of, off of it. So I started to do a bunch of research, and that meant that I, I pulled out really obscure references from the 1800s, from little snippets of books here and there, and I decided, I'm going to write my master's thesis on this. I think there's a connection between sugar addiction and eating disorders in women. I cannot be the only human being that's gone through this journey and learned all these insights. I'm sure that there's something here, and I felt like I was on the cutting edge of something. So I put together a master's proposal thesis. I I submitted it to a university in Europe. It was Trinity College in Dublin, Ireland, and they accepted me. So it was a master's of philosophy and it's very, the the departments in Europe are quite interdisciplinary. So they were giving me quite a bit of freedom to explore this. And so I get there and I say, you know, this is what I'm looking to write my thesis on. And I was all lit up and so excited. And they said, well, great, we'll show us your research. So I pulled these little snippets of paper and these little references to a mouse study here. And, and I, I present it to them with this excitement. And you can see the committee was like, that's all you got? I'm like, I know, it's really cutting edge. And basically, they reconvened and they said, you can't do this topic. There's not enough scientific evidence to suggest. There's really nothing to suggest that sugar could be addictive or that it is in any way implicated in eating disorders in women. So... um I was very, very disappointed, but I suppose the upside, well, I don't know if it's the upside, if I'm looking on the sunny side, it it, it fueled this 
even deeper tenacity. I know I'm onto something here. I know sugar can be addictive, at least for some of us. And I know it can put us, when we fight this addiction without having a proper strategy, it can just, it just pokes the beast and we wind up in this protracted power struggle that sometimes we win and sometimes we lose. And it's crazy because it consumes so much time and energy and it's demoralizing. Every time we say to ourselves, I'm never again going to eat sugar. And we do, we destroy our self-respect and self-esteem and they tank. There's so much at stake. There was so much at stake. And so, but I still did not have a way of being able to come in and shift my addiction outside of just applying pure willpower. So that wouldn't come for many, like literally years late, like sadly, 20 years later. Yeah, it is tough. It's like once you get that in your brain that until you figure out your ninja trick, well, we'll get to it. But anyway, until you figure it out. It's really very sad that you're on this roller coaster mental battle with yourself and you yes. feel so bad about yourself and you can't figure yes. out why can't I figure this out and yes. what is wrong with me and why do yes. I have such this big struggle? Yes, of, yes. Know. How do you not ask yourself what's wrong with me? I mean, I think that was like the constant drone of voice in my, what is wrong with you? I'm in the dark. Imagine this. I'm in the dark. I have a migraine. I'm drinking water. I feel like vomiting. Potentially, it might have been so bad. I wanted to die. I am praying. And I, at that point in time, I was probably agnostic and if not atheist. I didn't even know what I was praying to, but I was still begging that maybe someone could hear me and help me. And in the back of my mind, I know that eating gluten and sugar triggers migraines. Why are you, and I ask, why are you still eating gluten and sugar? What is wrong with you? Exactly. Right? You complain about having these migraines, but yesterday you ate pumpkin pie. What is, what is wrong with you? Right? Like, why are you doing this? So how do you Yeah, same thing with the hangover. Like when you're awake at three o'clock in the morning and you got that hangover and you're just like, oh my gosh, I did this again. And why did I do this to myself again? Yes. Like yes. That, you know. Yes. So for me, I did this giant, massive detour. Now, some of the work was very valuable. And I believe in the work that I did in a way. I mean, absolutely. Just I think it was irrelevant to me kicking my sugar addiction. But I did this. What is wrong with me story? So that, I, of course, our brains being the way they're wired, it right. goes to look for the answers. So, you know, every day it would come up with all these answers of what's wrong with me. And then I'm in and out of therapy sessions and I'm finding a psychologist to try and unpack all this and try to figure this out. And then you start mining your childhood and you start looking at all the things that weren't right and things that aren't right about your history, about your family, about your mom and your dad and life and God and the universe. Holy crapola. What a total what a detour. Right. It is wonderful to be on a journey of healing, of growing, of is evolving of spiritual, evolving as spiritual beings, as human beings. It was completely irrelevant to me ending my addiction. And um, and I'll, I, I may be able to say, put more words around that. Like, I'm not saying therapy and psychologists and doing personal growth and development work isn't valuable, but I was doing it because I was desperate to get out of an addiction. And all it did was prolong the addiction. It really did because it put the focus on my flaws. 
instead of on what was really the issue. And the issue is I am not my body and I'm not my mind. I have a body and I have a mind. And for me, my body responds to sugar like an opiate. My brain lights up like a Christmas tree. That's it. There's no more, there's no more that I need to the story. You know, there's no more I need to know about the story, even though we can make it very complex and it is. But if we keep it at its most simple, my limbic brain responds to sugar and refined carbohydrates like an opiate. And that includes alcohol for me. And for many of my clients, sugar and alcohol are really tied. Um, I was lucky because alcohol gave me such blinding hangovers and such terrible migraines and because I still had sugar and cakes and black forest cake and whatever it was it was something I I could let go over time pretty easily but I I clung pretty tightly to sugar um my body clung really tightly to sugar because it had figured out over the years that despite the negative consequences it still brought pleasure it still took the edge off of pain and it still brought and its job is to avoid pain and to pursue pleasure and it just thought it was doing its job yeah your brain so, is it's designed to keep you safe right yeah and it's kind of and it's amazing how and this is part of why i'm so fascinated by when i discovered you on the sugar summit is because that's the once i was able to effortlessly stop drinking like just wake up and go okay i'm done with that yeah then i started studying the brain and figuring out, okay, why, first of all, why did it happen in the first place? Just like you, I went on that mini path of the therapy and the, my life and what was wrong, which really didn't have anything to do with why I was able to one day wake up and go, okay, I'm really done with that, as if I never had it. Yes. You know, and it yes. wasn't, it didn't have anything to do with all that other stuff I did. Yes, it did make me a different person, and I like that person, but yes. it wasn't the answer Yes. to the transforming my relationship with alcohol and I really call it a relationship because really it was it was like she was my best friend and I turned to her for everything yes you know, like the happy time the sad time the hiding time the joyful time like everything right? yes so yes that's like you know but yes. it's like once I just started studying the brain you're right it's like your brain's job is to keep you safe and so up until a certain point you kind of trained your brain that sugar was it or for me alcohol was it like, this was your way of being safe. Yes. And, you know, and it was doing its job. And yes, so yes. Yeah. I think that it's kind of like we need to first, I want everyone listening to kind of celebrate, like, if you're here and you can totally relate to what we're saying, it's because your brain is doing its job. And it's very, and you should be celebrating that, okay, my brain's doing my job now, what can I do? So now let's go into the the really good part. Like what is it? Say yes, I, time. <laughs> I would love to tag onto that idea. You're right. We're not broken. I guarantee right. you, you've got yeah. issues. We've all got issues. Right. And I guarantee you that many of us addicts have drama and trauma in our past, but many of us don't. There yeah. are people that have gone through stunningly traumatic events in their childhood that are not addicts. So that the, our issues and our drama and our trauma and our, our evolution um, as human beings is the richness of life. I mean, and when you're on the other side of an addiction, that work can start at a, in a level and a way that is so beautiful and so interesting. And I'm happy to share about how how on the other side of an addiction, instead of it feeling like something you like you're a fixer upper, you, you need to fix yourself because you're broken. 
you just feel excited. Like, Oh, I get to, I get to grow here and I get to tackle that challenge and overcome that. And life feels adventurous again. Um, and that's how it should have felt all the way along. But I had it in my head that I was broken. There was something wrong with me that I needed to fix myself first before I could end my addiction, before I could end my eating disorder. I don't think I knew it was an addiction. I didn't know. I wouldn't. Oh, I say I say that I kind of knew I was addicted to sugar, but I didn't. I don't think I really understood what that meant until I had found a 12 step program um, that were really like made it quite clear what that looks like. And I started to read that, you know, the big book and started to talk with other addicts. And I realized, oh, just the, the layers of, of what it means to be an addict. Um, so for me, it's it's I think about it slightly different. It, it, it doesn't matter. Yeah, that's awesome. So. Um, so I'm in my late 20s. I mean, doing my master's, I had to pick a different th- topic. I still had a fabulous experience. I absolutely loved it. And then I came back to Canada and I was work. Oh, yeah, I was working. And then I got pregnant. And by this point in time, I'm like 33, 34. And I would say I primarily eat organic. I was juicing. Um, I was mostly not complete. I was probably 80 to 90 percent whole foods. But I still I still had sugar in my life. And it was enough that I knew I was never at peace. I was never going to be at peace with any amount of sugar in my life because they would awful if I had a little. I wanted a lot. So it was never just, oh, I'll just have a little nibble. of it. I could never moderate. It was never an option. So when I had a little, I wanted a lot. And there was constant cravings and obsession about it and fighting it. It was there's still way too much time and energy and thought being put into the, the battle with sugar and junk foods. So. I'm pregnant with Skye, my daughter, and I am hellbent. <laughs> I do not want sugar sugar in my bloodstream. I don't want, it's one thing to take my body down. It's a whole other to bring a beautiful little baby into this dance. And so I'm like, I don't want any blood sugar in my bloodstream. I don't want it in my breast milk. I want to set this kid up to not be a lover of sugar. Um, <laughs> And so I ate almost exclusively whole foods through my pregnancy, which was so interesting because you hear about people who are cigarette smokers or drinkers and they give it, they're abstinent while they're pregnant. So it's incredible that we could do this for the love of our baby in our belly. Exactly. Yeah. Crazy. But I have to say I had two slips. I clearly recall having nearly three quarters of a pumpkin pie at Halloween because again, I was just gonna have one little slice and I'd been, I'd been so good, it was just a slice. There's never just a slice with an addict. So three quarters of a pie later, also had a horrible headache, a horrible headache after that and I didn't wanna take Advil so I had to suffer through it, oh my goodness. And then I had a cheese sandwich, which really isn't so much sugar, although I suppose wheat is really sugar in the bloodstream for many of us, um, but both the sugar and the cheese triggered a migraine there too, so anyway. Those were my only two slips in 10 months. I've got Sky. She's perfect and she's beautiful and I'm nursing her. And for the first little bit, I'm impeccable about keeping sugar and junk, junk food out of my breast milk. And then I went back to work when she was one and I was a professor at the university and I was staying up late reading papers and preparing my, my lectures. And I probably just got overtired and all, all the reasons we relapse. Um, and they're always a bit different. Sometimes it's because we're happy. And sometimes, like you said, it's because we're sad or we're tired or whatever. But I went back <laughs> to sugar and I had, I was eating cookies and they were, 
it was such a deep betrayal because it wasn't just me. It was my, my beautiful sky. And it was kind of like a new low. It was a new bottom. And I just, I thought this, this has to stop. So really what had happened is that I was coming back from the university and I was thinking about the night ahead. I had to pick up Sky and I had to do this and I had to mow the lawn. And I don't know, it was just kind of being overwhelmed by my to-do list. And my car drove into the delicatessen and parked itself and basically said, run in and go and get some of, some of those white chocolate chip macadamia cookies, please. The, chop, chop, run along, right? I'm like, no. So I go in and I buy the cookies and I get in the car and I'm taking off the cellophane and I'm like, no, I don't want to do this. <laughs> anyway, yeah. so it was, it was clear then there was a split mind. I felt like I was being compelled to do it, but there was a part of me that was resisting, really unhappy about watching me do this behavior. So I ate, I think about eight cookies of the 12. I feel sick by the time I get home. Like it was pure sugar on an empty stomach. I just feel disgusting. And I'm so disappointed because of course I'm going home to nurse my, my daughter. And I come home and I wrap those freaking cookies up and I march over to the garbage can under my sink full of garbage and I stuff them in there. And it's the dead of winter and it's now dark because it's like January in Canada. So it's dark and it's cold and it's miserable. And I put on my jacket, and my winter boots, and I tie up that garbage bag and I truck my butt all the way through the snow in the backyard. And I stuff, stuff it in the most beat up. Imagine this metal can that's disgusting and beat up. And anyways, it's, I stuff it in there and that's it. This time, no more nonsense. I am freaking done with this crap. I go to bed peacefully and I'm, I'm done. This is my turning point. This is my bottom. And the next morning, about 5.30, my eyes pop open. And all I could think about were those four freaking cookies. <laughs> yeah. I was like, no, no. So I put on my boots and put on my jacket and I held those cookies up. They were fine. It was just a bit of potato peelings and whatever. It was just, they're fine. They're perfectly fine. They're frozen solid, but they're even better frozen. Different good. So I finish off those cookies. And at that point in time, I collapse to the floor in tears. I'm like, this is real. Somebody in the universe, if there's anybody, I really need help with this. This is, I'm a headstrong, intelligent woman, highly successful, really happy. There is nothing broken in my world. Why am I behaving like this? And I'm done with the idea that I need to fix myself. There is nothing left to fix, really. I mean, we're always growing, but I that had been abandoned. The idea that I could fix myself and then that, that would fix my food, long since over. I loved my job. I loved my baby. I loved my life. I was a runner. There was nothing freaking broken, except some stupid, weird dynamic with sugar. So that night, by the grace of God, I opened up the newspaper and there's a little ad for a 12-step program called Food Addicts and Recovery Anonymous. And I call the contact. I talk to a guy named Ron. And I'm like, Ron, I just saw your ad. Like, really? There's a 12-step program for food addiction? He goes, there is. Fastest growing 12-step program in the world. He goes, you got to come to a meeting. And I start telling my story. And he goes, you're one of us. You're just get your butt down here. It's going to be good. <laughs> so they gave me a meal plan. They kicked my butt. They made me follow it to the T, weighed and measured. It was incredibly strict. 
you couldn't talk for 90 days. And this is the only 12-step program in the world where you're not allowed to talk for 90 days. You've got 90 days of back-to-back -back abstinence. So they mean business. They basically say sugar and flowers make you crazy, sick, and fat. That's the facts. So until as long as you've still got flour and sugar circulating in your bloodstream and in your brain, you're a little bit kooky. We don't want to hear your drama. You're going to be like, oh, it's so hard. Oh, you're going to be going through withdrawal and your brain chemistry is going to be wonky. It will settle. And then after 90 days of back-to-back -back abstinence, you're going to come to the front of the room and you're going to be lit up and you're going to tell a story. And it, we're, we can hardly wait. So that was the message, right? Right. So I was with them for two years. I did weigh and measure. I did get my 90 days of back-to-back -back abstinence, but I was not a free woman. The weighing and the measuring, the fear that if I missed a meeting, I had to make three to five phone calls a day. I had to do a 12-step meeting. It's not that I resented them. It was extraordinary time commitment, but I wasn't free. I was, I was like in a totally different kind of prison um, the miracle of whole foods is impossible to put into words. And I don't just mean from my own personal experience, um, just person after person turning the, losing weight, being on 10 different medications and being off of all of them within six months. I, I know a man who literally had been a diabetic type two 30 years. He got his 90 days abstinence back to back. It took him a little while, but we got to the front of the room and he's like, I am no longer diabetic. And at that point in time, this was 15, 16 years ago. I thought he was lying. Like, I don't think that, I don't think it's possible <laughs> to not be diabetic. But the people in my group, I was still kind of new, were like, it happens all the time. They no longer need insulin. Their blood sugars regulate. The miracles of whole foods are impossible to describe. I've lived it uh, for years and years in and out of those in and out of those meetings. And I talked to people all over the world. So the gift of the program was that it made me take my addiction very seriously. It taught me how to weigh in, like taught me a meal plan that really had no processed foods in it, which is the heart of getting sober, right? Because you want abstinence. So as long as you've got the white refined stuff out, but you're still eating potato chips or gluten-free flours or flour or bread or whatever for many of us that turns to sugar in our bloodstream or we're drinking suddenly we're drinking more red wine or we're drinking more fruit juice or fruit leather all these different ways in which the body turns that food into sugar sugar is sugar as long as it acts like sugar in your bloodstream it's sugar so that was the piece that was missing in my understanding of of sugar addiction and how to really get clean and sober so that you had no cravings. You were truly free. And I had no cravings. I was truly free of the desire for sugar, but the effort required to hang on to my abstinence and the fear that I would relapse. And if I relapsed, I would go off on this crazy binge and never come back. And so the other piece of it was that the meal plan wasn't quite right for me. It was a lot of meat and that was, it wasn't, I was so underweight I was 112 pounds. I'm 5'7". I was by far and away the skinniest person on my program. I was a runner. I was active. So they were saying, you know, maybe you should give up running. I'm like, maybe we should tweak my meal plan. They didn't like that very much. <laughs> so they were like, no, this is the meal plan. You know, you need to adjust around it. And that didn't really work for me. I kind of knew in my heart of hearts, the meal plan was close, but not quite. I needed more carbohydrates, whole grains, healthy, not necessarily even whole grains, but 
probably, yeah, possibly some whole grains, but I definitely needed more carbohydrate because I was doing six ounces of meat three times a day. And that certainly wasn't keeping the weight on. And I wasn't feeling great either. I was very constipated. And there were still some health issues that I would have thought would have resolved itself after two years. So I left which left me without a program, without, left me without a way of, of finishing that last little bit that I wanted. Yeah, I was craving free, but I wasn't really free from the, the obsession, the effort needed to stay free. And that didn't come until, so that was about 40 when I left program. And at this point in time, I continued to be very interested in researching. I lectured, I found ways in my courses when I was a professor to talk about food issues and sugar issues. I mean, it's amazing how creative addicts' minds can be. Um, <laughs> I, would bring a, I tie it to some things because I always wanted to talk about, I was giving public lectures in libraries still. Um, I was still very interested in the issue and still progressing in terms of reading books and staying very current. Um, and at one point in time, I decided I was loving. I could see over the course of 20 years that there was more and more conversations about sugar, more books coming on the market, more media articles about it, um, which was very exciting because I wasn't feeling quite so alone and isolated and and crazy in the head. Um, but in the it was also really clear to me that people were talking a lot more about why we want to get off the sugar, um, but there wasn't an a lot of conversation about the addiction piece of it. And it's a very small percentage of us that are truly addicted. Just like there's probably a small percent of a percentage of us that fall into the category of alcoholic. Um, but for those of us for whom that's very real, um, there still wasn't a lot of talk about that. And so I decided I would host the world's first international telesummit on sugar addiction. And I interviewed leading thought think you know expert world experts on that which is how you found me and in the course and in the course of uh interviewing one of my speakers his name was jack trimpey t-r-i-m-p-e-y and he wrote a book called rational recovery and i was just connecting with him to see if he might like to be a speaker on my summit and in the course of conversation he shared with me this big insight this big quantum shift in consciousness that he had exactly what you described Debbie I think you guys had the exact same epiphany and he said he had this blinding epiphany and he shared it with me and literally on the spot in that phone call I just went oh my gosh I get that like I really get that it was like this quantum shift so that was my next pivot and final pivot point so since that phone call, and I'm happy to share what that, that blinding insight was, but since that phone call, I've been 100%, 100% free. It took me about six months before I trusted that it would last. I don't know. Did you have that too? Did you yes, wonder if you knew what you Yeah? Yeah, because it's been, for me, it's been like 18 months now. But yes, it was like six months. I kept still going, okay, but one day I'm going to have that like, my arm is just going to do its automatic thing and it's going to happen. Yes. You know, <laughs> like it yes. just doesn't, you know, but it doesn't, it, it hasn't, it doesn't, it's, and it yes. is, it's like, it's so, you're right. It's because your story of when you're going to the meetings and you're doing all this stuff, it's like, no, but I just want to be done with this. Yes. Like, it's like you just made a different jail. 
right? Yes, like, yes. I didn't actually go personally myself. I didn't attend uh, AA meetings or alcohol, but because I, because I already, because I, I guess I had gone twice. There's a couple of different ones, and I was like, yeah, but that doesn't work for me because I can't stand up and say these things about myself because I'm a big believer in law of attraction and your thoughts become your reality. And I felt like if I stand up and say I'm powerless, then I'm going to be powerless everywhere in my life. And I don't want to be powerless everywhere in my life. I'm having enough trouble with this one, right? I don't want to <laughs> like, you know, I'm like, I want mm -hmm. to keep my power. So I didn't. So I knew that was not my match was yes. going and saying and doing that. But I also have met people that that is what they have found so far yes and they are still right where you were where you're still like okay no I don't pick it up I don't have it but I feel like I'm having to do so much work to make sure that I don't yes and so There's that's still that fear right this huge that huge fear in their life that oh no it's gonna I'm gonna slip up and I'm gonna screw the up the fear of relapse exactly Yes. Exactly. And so they're not I have, like totally free yet. And that's part of why I like doing this podcast is because I want people to hear about other options too. You know, that yes. there is a freedom, a total 100% freedom. A total 100% freedom. 100%. Yes. And that fear of relapse controls you. There is yeah. a book that I think captures that fear of relapse and the power it can have over us like no other book written on the planet i'm sure of that it's called the suicide gene do you know the suicide gene is that right i think she renamed it debbie maybe i will um i'll look that up before we end just so that i've got that right her name is candace oh dear she was one of my speakers and she doesn't go she has an alias last name and a real last name. I'm going to leave it at okay. Candace. I'm going to get the information to you okay. because I know she retitled the book, but her whole thing was, is that she's so afraid of relapse that she fell under the, the control of a very, very mentally not well um, therapist who basically controlled her life for 20 years saying, if you don't do what I say, you're going to relapse. And so she would do what he said. And it was like pretty crazy. And she wrote wow. a book about it. She's out of the UK, but it really reminds us that we will do anything to hang on to our abstinence once we've got it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and so, yeah, that fear of relapse can be. So just to go back to the idea of powerlessness, I have to say that to be fair, there were stretches throughout my program, my, you know, my two years of, of two, two, two to three years of being in 12 steps for food addiction where I really could feel the shift of what the, 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 the why for some people that feeling of powerless can work. It did work for me. There was such a release and a letting go and the power struggle stopped and I stopped using willpower and I don't know what stepped in, but there really is something to the 12 step program for some people and it can oh, yeah. bring them up. It can bring them into that freedom that you and I have. It just, it didn't sustain itself for me. I don't know why it wasn't the right path for me. It was a piece of my journey and I'm grateful for it. And I love that it works for some people. And I love that there's alternatives. Um, oh yes, absolutely. Yeah. 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 And I know we, we share that. Um, and I, I love that for some people there, I think that if they're very structured and they're good with weighing and measuring and doing all those processes and commitments every week, that's, that's a pleasure for them. And it fits. I'm like, that's great. But I was like you in my heart of hearts. I wanted to totally stop 
thinking about food. I wanted to be 100% free because I knew that I was at risk of having my dreams die with me. And that was not acceptable. I couldn't spend my whole life just fighting food, trying to get it right. You know, that would have been a waste of my life. And so I wasted far too many years as it is. Um, so I know I'm sure that's a piece that drives both you and I to do what we do, which is <laughs> yeah, turn back around and help more men and women get out of the mud, you know, hose themselves off, tie up their little shoelaces, yes, high five, go rock out your life. Right, and not have it be, take so long and be so hard, you know, because yes. it doesn't have to be. It, it doesn't, doesn't have to be. Right. No. So the technique, the ninja mind trick that, that, that worked for me, that was, that was shared with me with Jack. And I'll be honest, I would never have got sugar free. I would never have found my freedom if I had just read his book. And it's not because it's not brilliant. It's because it's very specific to drugs and alcohol. And I don't think I would have been able to translate it properly um, to, to have got free from sugar. Plus, it's different because it's a plug in the jug with alcohol and drugs. You drop the needle or you put the plug in the jug. Food, you navigate your meals three times a day. Plus, sugar is not just one substance. It's 56 names. Plus, for some of us, there's things that turn to sugar in our bloodstream that doesn't turn to sugar in other people's bloodstream. So for me, I had to make all kinds of mistakes about my definition of sugar um, in the first year, maybe a year and a half of my being completely free free in the head, um, and free of sugar, but my definition of sugar had to expand. It, it began to include things like organic purple corn chips, which I never would have thought of as sugar. But when I test my blood sugar and I'm non-diabetic and I've never been diabetic, I've had all the signs and symptoms of like I have non-diabetic neuropathy. I have other, um, conditions that are similar to diabetes, but I never really fully, you know, crossed over the line. But I click my, I know what turns to sugar because I can test my blood sugars like a diabetic would. So that helps you give some really concrete feedback from your body about what is turning to sugar. So that journey for me, eventually, once I felt like, you know what, I know how to turn Jack's brilliant work in the drug and alcohol recovery field into a solution or a path to freedom in the sugar addiction recovery world. And so that's what I'm doing now is I, I wasn't ever planning on being a sugar coach <laughs> ever never occurred to me it was it was I knew I wanted to be a thought leader I knew I wanted to be a, you know researcher and sharing ideas and the science around this but it never occurred to me that one day I might have a solution to offer people that can help them find a path to absolute 100% freedom so yeah, I feel like I have the best job in the world and I'm the luckiest woman in the world, despite the fact that I wasted 20, 30 years struggling my butt through all of this, but I'm through. And so at least I can say I got something to offer the world. Exactly. But however, if you didn't have that story, you wouldn't, because you can see your passion, you can feel your passion and you can feel your desire to make it that that doesn't have to be somebody else's story for so long. For, yes. you know, because the first, I I also believe that, first off, for people to find us to, and to really want to work with us, they have to be already at a state of like, okay, I want to do something about this. Yeah. Like, it's not, like, you can't just go out and they're not going to want to do the effort and the energy that it does take. Like, it still takes effort and energy 
And so they're not going to want to do that and look at it differently and be open to it until they're at a state of least where it's like, okay, I'm ready. I'm ready for this to be different. So if you didn't have all that in your story, you wouldn't really be able to relate to so many people. It's so true. It's part of it. It is, you know, just like in my situation. I mean, I didn't even, I didn't figure mine out. I just turned 61 a couple of days ago. And so I didn't figure it out until, like, you know, until I was 59, you know. So yeah. it took 40 years. I mean, I had that on and off horrible thing. But it was really just the last 10 years. Because up until the last 10 years, it was fine in my life. Alcohol was my best friend and it didn't interfere with my life. And then once it was that something in my brain said, Okay, wait. This is no longer working. Yes. And then that's when the battle started. Yes. <laughs> yes, I get that. Like, yes, yes. Know? And and that's amazing. Um Yeah, and I I had that first awakening in my early 20s. I didn't get free till I was 48. It's okay. heartbreaking to me, Debbie. Yeah, and I'm too. glad I can be, I'm glad I can be useful to the world and I can turn around and help people. Sugar and alcohol and processed foods and all that crap is so, it robs us of quality of life. I mean, it isn't just the pain and suffering of disease, but it's tied with depression and fatigue issues and feeling fat for people who easily gain weight and turns carbohydrates, sugars in the bloodstream into fat, and everybody's a bit different that way and how good they are at doing that. And but the pain and suffering it causes is so catastrophic and so huge. So I'm happy I can be useful, but I'm really sad because I think, who would I be? Like, if I had got free in my early 20s, even in my yeah. late 20s, what would I have done with the rest of my life? I don't know. I think I probably would have been a professor and happy, happy, happy doing that. Um, you know, there's a beautiful woman by the name of Sherry Strong, and she's also a sugar coach. And she said she looked back on her life and she realized that the only reason she's a sugar coach is because this, she got so caught up in this. And when she got free, she felt that same calling to turn around and help other people get free. And uh, she said, but if I hadn't got caught up in this sugar thing, who who would I have been? And you know what her answer was? And I could feel it when she says it. She said, I would have been a folk singer. Ah, okay. Wow. Like, wouldn't that have been cool? And she's very beautiful. She's got this thick curly hair and she's gorgeous. And I can see her with her guitar on a stage and being a folk singer. So I just think, yeah, it's sad to me that I've wasted so many, way too much time, way too much energy, way too much money trying to get free, but I am free and I'm deeply grateful for that. But um, it can be really simple and it can happen really quickly and it can be as simple as a quantum shift. And the insight that Jack taught me is that we are the opposite of powerless. And I know powerless works for some people. It does. And I even had my own little experience of that. It wasn't sustainable for lots of reasons, but I do know that there's something magical sometimes about that surrender. There's power in surrendering. Um, and I'm glad it works for some people. But what really worked for me was in, when Jack said the exact opposite, you are not powerless. And here's the core insight. And this literally in and of itself right here, right now on this call can set people free. It did me. It's possible. And I've had this with my clients happen. Jack's definition of addiction 
is that there's a moment when we become of two minds. There's a part of us that doesn't want to drink alcohol anymore. There's a part of us that doesn't want to continue to consume refined carbohydrates, processed crap. And there's a part of us that does. And the minute we've got that split in consciousness and we're ambivalent, we're of two minds, that's the moment you become an addict. He said, prior to that, you're not an addict. What you are is exercising your constitutional right to enjoy alcohol, to enjoy Black Forest cheesecake for breakfast or whatever. Right. <laughs> you, right? you are one with that pleasure and you are not awakened yet to the idea that that pleasure is causing pain. So you are not an addict. You're only an addict in that moment, that split second when you split into two, con two points of view. And what we think as addicts is that we are powerless. So for me, I call it the sugar gremlin or the sugar monster. I used to think about it as the inner cookie monster. And it has a very clear voice. And when we say, I'm never again going to eat sugar or drink alcohol, and you sit for one quick second, if you do this right now on this call, for one quick second, you sit with that, I am never again going to drink alcohol. If you are truly one of us and you are truly an addict, in no time at all, you're going to hear another voice. And I know it's going to sound crazy. <laughs> and I know it sounds like we're schizophrenic or something. But we yeah. always have voices in our head. And that addicted voice in our head will start talking. And it will say all kinds of crazy stuff. Like, that's ridiculous. Don't be so extreme. You can moderate. No, you can't. My addict will say things like, you've tried this so many times before. Come on. For 28 years, you've been trying to get free. You're so cute. There's no way. There's no way you can pretend to be the boss of me. Here's how it's going to be. When I want sugar, you will give me as much as I want, or I will throw a pitch. I will pitch a fit. And if you white knuckle your way through a few days or a few weeks of abstinence, you will pay. There will be a binge that knocks your frickin' socks off just to let you know who's the boss around here. That's the voice of my inner addict. It's a bully. It's scary. I bought the idea that it has all this power because it did seem to have all this power. It seemed exactly. to make my car, right? It seemed yeah. to make my car and my arm, like my car drive into parking lots and then my body go like a, a zombie into a delicatessen to buy cookies. It didn't, all the while in my head, I'm screaming, no, I don't want to be doing this, right? It seemed like it could take over my body and be the boss of me. My higher mind, the neocortex, the rational brain, once you split into two minds, that rational brain, that higher mind, it could even be your higher self if that resonates with you, is able to see the whole picture and go, this doesn't work. I, I call my definition of bottom is when the pleasure you get from your drug of with when the pain that your drug of choice is bringing you is greater than the pleasure it brings you, you've got your bottom. That's right. the moment when the split happens, right? Exactly. Um, yeah. So once you once your higher mind goes, you know what? And the pros and cons of this, when I rationally look at my food choices here, continuing to choose to eat refined carbohydrates. Now, I wish I could do moderation if I wasn't an addict. I, you know, just like I'm sure as an alcoholic, you say, I'm glad you can enjoy a glass of wine. That's great. I can't. <laughs> I, if I have one, <laughs> I, I want to have three and I'll have one, I have three the next day too. So for those of us, freedom comes addicts 
freedom and abstinence are one and the same. Generally speaking, that's mostly true. Sometimes there can be a little bit of a shift on that around food because our body chemistry and the way we metabolize sugar and stuff can shift and improve. But that's generally true of cigarettes and alcohol, I think, and heroin and stuff like that. That aside, we've got this split. And all this time, the higher mind and the, rash, the rational higher human being, we are truly the only ones that have the capacity. To, we have voluntary control over our bodies. We're the only ones that have the capacity to move our arms, to pull out our wallets, to buy something, to go back to the car, to open it up, to right? We, The limbic brain, which is the pleasure-seeking part, the avoid pain, pursue pleasure, limbic brain, which is the second part of the human brain, is stupid. It's it's instinctive. It's survival drive based. It doesn't rationally look at the pros and cons of eating cookies or drinking alcohol. It just knows that when it does, it gets pleasure. It takes it dulls pain and it brings pleasure. And for it, that's all it thinks about. That's its job. Does it do that? Done. Let's do it. So it's going to pull in the direction of those of that pleasure. It does not, it doesn't have the the rational capacity to connect the negative consequences like our higher self does. But here's, here's when the whole thing falls apart and the whole gig is up is when you realize that your inner alcoholic addict or your inner sugar addict, the inner cookie monster starts to boss you around and pretend that it's the boss of you. Here's what I do. I lean back and I cross my arms and I play the same game it's been playing all these years. I play arrogant and I play difficult and I play bossy pants and I say, go ahead, gremlin, move my big toe, make me, make me. I'm not eating sugar. It's over. I now know that you cannot make me do anything. So my sugar freedom formula has three steps. You identify the voice of your addict and you do that by making a commitment and a decision and it's over. That's it. You've made your mind up. If you want to go back and do some research, you can. If you think you can do moderation, all the power to you. I'm pretty clear what my truth is. And in my heart of hearts, I cannot eat sugar. I don't want to eat sugar. Even if I can, I don't care. I don't want to. That's my truth. You identify the voice of your addict. You isolate it. That's not me. I'm of two minds, and the part of me that wants to give up sugar or alcohol or whatever, cigarettes, any other addiction, is the boss. Truly, the body is here to serve me. I'm not here to serve it. This power dynamic is backwards. It's upside down. It's wrong. And I've been collapsed into my animal body pleasure drive, and I need to restore my rightful authority as the boss of my body. I have not 99% of the power. I have one hundred percent of the power absolutely 100 percent of the power my body cannot my that pleasure drive can, does not have voluntary control control over my i cannot move my limbs it can suggest and justify it can bring on cravings and images and sensations and thoughts and all the different ways that it tries to persuade me to move my body but that's all it can do that's all it can do and that's its job to do that because it's constantly talking to us about giving us feedback and ideas. It's, it's its job. In this case, it's broken. We can't listen to the voice of our sugar gremlin, our food gremlin, um, because it's always going to steer us in the direction of things that act like an opiate. For its, It always wants to have a party with sugar. It will always want that. That's the definition of addiction. So, And the third step is you ignore it. You don't have to do anything. The power struggle's over. 
The nightmare is over. The war is over. You just have to do nothing. You just ignore it. And that is the foundation of freedom. Now, one thing just to finish up here is that Jack would say to me, Jack said to me, hundreds of millions of people have spontaneously ended their addictions. And he says each and every time they do, they are using this technique, um, this ninja mind trick, this awareness where you realize you've got all the power, that you're the opposite of powerless. You are 100% powerful. And he said, they've all, if anyone who's ever spontaneously just kicked sugar or kicked cigarettes or gave up alcohol like you did, he said, they've used this technique. They just didn't know they did. What they've done is they've made a decision and they've claimed their power and it's over and that's it. And so it's, it's, it's really simple. It's, it's, yeah, it it starts with the split and then it's it, the second step is the decision. And the third piece is just knowing when it's over, it's over and you have the power and you just all the other cravings and nonsense and talk and images. And it will try and suggest and justify why we should go for one more bottle. The one last hurrah. No, we can't. We can't, do this. We can't stop drinking tonight. What am I going to do on New Year's Eve? We've got to have a glass of like all that nonsense. Let's be super exactly. Yeah. Yeah. All that nonsense from that part of the brain. We just ignore it and we're free. Yeah. And it's, but I mean, it's just kind of like, it's amazing and fascinating and, and nobody, it's not like, I hadn't even heard of his book in, until I heard you talk about the, and I was like, okay, that's what, I mean, even though I knew I had been working on the brain and I had found some research from other people and how it changed, shifted the brain, but the literal way that it's, you know, way you had described it on the sugar summit was like, okay, yeah, that's exactly it. And it's no different. Like I just spent four days with my grandkids. So I have a four year, well, two of them anyway. So the four year old and the one that's just over one, she's, I guess she's 15 months old. Well, she's the one, as you're telling the story, it's just like her, like the 15 month old we're out. She doesn't know how to swim. We're out at this lake. We're out on this dock, but she wants to do her walking skills, right? Well, I'm the one with the power and the decision. Like, no, I'm not letting you go. You are gonna. If I let you go, you're gonna go in that water, and then you aren't gonna be here anymore, right? Even though she's having all the fits, she's having the redheaded temper tantrum. Like she's just going on and on, and like she is a little redheaded. She has that temper, and she's just like, but I, you know, screaming and carrying on. And as you're describing the story, I'm like, yeah, that's exactly what little Ellie did this weekend, you know, when I wouldn't let her go on the dock because there's no walls, there's no nothing, right? So she can't walk and let go on that dock. That would be, you know, I was the the person that, you know, just like in the brain, you know, the logic part of the brain, like, no, I decided. You're not doing that, little girl. That's just the way it goes. Yes. That's totally it. You know? That's totally it. I always say the issue is not the alcohol. It is not the sugar. It has nothing to do with it. It is yeah. our relationship to our body. I, I I think of it a little bit different. I don't think of sugar as my best friend. I I think of it as an opiate to my body and my body my body was was addicted. But my relationship to my body pleasure drive, that's the real issue. Whether it's sugar or alcohol or cigarettes or heroin or whatever the heck, it doesn't really matter what the what it is that's jacking up the brain chemistry that's creating this rogue pleasure drive that's different for everybody but it really what's broken is the dynamic the power dynamic between us being the authority our bodies are here to serve us and we're not our bodies and we're not our minds 
and they're here to serve us. And in an addiction that we collapse into the body, we lose our higher, we lose the observer mind, the ability to, to assert our power. And when you're asserting your power against that 15, 15 month old, it's the same. It's exactly the same dynamic. You've got it perfectly. And the 15-year-old should not be bossing you around. And it's not good for her and it's not good for it, for um, for you, right? It's the right. wrong power dynamic. And that's what happens in an addiction. Right. And I think some of us, a lot of us, it's like, oh, but I just want to shut that voice up. So let me just have this drink or let me just have yeah. this sugar because then it will shut up. Yes. Because it does. And it's yes. no different than like really with the toddler, you know, when they're screaming, they're carrying on. You're like, oh, my God, all I want to do is figure out how to make you stop that noise. But yes, but you giving them what they want isn't always in their best interest. Like letting her go and do that, that was not going to be in her best interest. So you know, so it's the same kind of a thing. Is we, it's like we we just want it to be quiet. And if you yes. can realize, like like what you're talking about, like okay, I can make it quiet. That's it. I'm done listening to you. Yes. You know, and so it's it's just fascinating the whole. Yes. You know, so, um, so as we wrap this up, though, so how can people, especially if there's this more they're finding after listening and listening to us and going listening to your story and whatever, it's not necessarily just alcohol. Maybe there's really is sugar. So how can yeah. people actually get a hold of you and find you and get more insight? And I will also put all the information in the show notes for the yeah, episode. sure, thanks. Right. Okay, that sounds great. So yeah, I run a, a seven weeks to sugar freedom group coaching program. And basically it's everything that I've taught here with, with um, some simple exercises that help us corner the gremlin. And then I talk about an MEO plan and like, yeah, it's just an expanded uh, version. Oh, oh, oh. And then the last two modules, which we have not touched on, and I know there's not time we need to wrap this up, but you can have <laughs> me back another day if you want. Um, yeah. It's what happens after you're free. And I know for you and I, similarly, I kept thinking the shoe was going to be a drop. This seems too easy. This seems too good to be true. Is this really going to last? But it just does day after day after day. And then there's a moment when you realize I'm free. I'm really, truly 100% recovered. I am free. And so I'm, that's, different, that's a different moment for everybody. Right. Um, it's maybe similar to that moment when you realize I'm addicted. Once you know that truth, there's no going back. You'll we'll never be at peace. I always say to my clients, you, I'm sh nobody gives up sugar without a really, really good reason. Nobody who would ever give up cake and cookies and pie and candies. <laughs> who, like seriously, unless you had a really good reason. A, it's incredibly inconvenient, and B, it's. I mean, they're so beautiful and delicious, and it's such a huge part of our food culture. You must have a really good reason. What's your really good reason? And then I say to them. I love it. And those are all really good reasons, but there's really only one reason at the end of the day, why we're choosing to give up sugar, why we're even on this path, why we're even having this conversation. And it's this, that never at the end of the day, will we ever be at peace until we honor this truth. And we don't want to spend the last few minutes of our day regretting, feeling guilt, shame, and regret about what we ate that day. And as long as sugar's something, part of what we ate that day, we will never be at peace. The only reason truly at the end of the day in our heart of hearts why we're doing this is because we have a truth. And it's not like, oh, I think I should give up sugar, right? I feel I, you know, I should give. It's like a deep knowing because nobody calls me to get off of sugar unless it's at that stage. Probably the same with you, right? It's a knowing. And once you know you need to be free of sugar. You will never be at peace until you are. And that is the reason we do this.
Why is it our truth? Why did we get to be the lucky ones? Why did we have that splitting consciousness in the beginning of that journey of claiming our power back and having our bodies serve us? I don't know, but that makes us so lucky. Forget why we're addicts or why we're alcoholics or who cares? Who cares? At the end of the day, what matters is that we got the awareness and we're finding paths to freedom and the rest of our lives can be spent And this is the piece I was going to talk about. The last two modules of my course are all about what does a sugar-free, what does rocking out our addiction-free lives look like? And we're more more raw. There's no no doubt about it. But instead of our bodies thinking it needs to shut down discomfort, what about if we lived in a world, in a dynamic with our body, where we were like, oh, what's that? Oh, dear. What's that? Um, Tell me more. You're uncomfortable? Are you in pain, sweetheart? What can I do? And we get to show up for ourselves really, truly. And it's beautiful. And yeah, there's some skill involved and it takes a little bit of time. And But it's beautiful work. And all this time we've been afraid of our feelings and our pain and our discomfort. Our body's been so quick to jump in with the solution. Hey, I noticed the thing. We should... <laughs> We don't need that anymore. And the substitute, the alternative is not like, oh, second best. Heck no. It's way better than sugar and alcohol. Showing up and being present and loving and patient and curious about what's going on emotionally for ourselves. That's the rich part. And that's the part we get to look forward to. It's not the part we need to dread. Despite what I thought for decades. Because <laughs> it felt right, like such yeah. hard work. Because <laughs> I was th- looking at it through the lens of I need to fix myself. Well, I'm not looking. I don't need to fix anything about me. I get to just be present and keep showing up for myself and keep evolving spiritually. And now I'm on a spiritual path. I couldn't have done that while I was in an addiction. That only came after. And I'm so grateful for that piece. There's so many, so many things I'm grateful for. But that is a surprise. Well, yeah, and I think that because I like to refer to it as like your kind of rebranding yourself like okay who am I now without this in my life I love it because for so long you had all this in your life and that's who you were right and that's how you showed up in this world but now it's not there so yes now you've you've stopped you figured out your gremlin you don't have it you're you realize you're in control but now I need to rebrand me and how can I how am I going to show up in my life now like this and that's kind of the same kind of thing. Is that how I, I love it? Yeah, I like that. That's it. Like, like that's it. You're rebranding who you are now without that mm-hmm. in your life. Yeah. Um, so let's end on that note as we go. We can go okay. for hours. I hear you. So my, my website is you can find me at uh, kicksugarcoach.com. Kicksugarcoach.com. Okay. Yeah, and I have it's you can also go to florencechristophers.com. That's my um, that's my seven week course. You can get more details on that. And you can also anyone's I have a, a, a business phone line and anyone's welcome to call if you're like a pick up the phone kind of person. That's awesome. I'm a pick up the phone kind of person. You are welcome <laughs> to call me. Honestly, I am in Canada, though. Make sure you've got a long distance plan. Um, it's uh, my phone number is four zero three nine nine five zero three nine one. And I All bless right. your genie. And uh, thanks for thanks for having me on your show, Debbie. Oh, thank you so much for being here, Florence. I so enjoyed every second of it. 
Good. You have been listening to Exit the Drinking Life podcast with Debbie Talbert. It is my honor, pleasure, and joy to come to you each and every week with insight, information, ideas, tools, and tips to help you exit the drinking life. If you'd like to know more about how you can work with me directly, then go to jumpseatcoaching.com and there you can find out everything I offer and how we can connect and work together directly.